The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. This is actually a very hard issue, and I'm glad that Facebook has referred the question to the board because I think there are legitimate trade-offs here, right? Like on the one hand, it obviously looks extremely bad to have a small subset of users, high-profile, powerful people that are subject to a special system that gives them priority. And in fact, the way that it played out in practice was because the system was completely overwhelmed, it basically amounted to a whitelist where these people could basically post whatever they wanted. Like that looks terrible. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th, 2021. We're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. It's been roughly a year since the Facebook Oversight Board opened its doors for business. And while you may mostly remember the board from its decision on Donald Trump's suspension from Facebook, there's been a lot going on since then. So we thought it was a good time to check in on how this experiment in platform governance is faring. In October, the board released its first transparency report, and Facebook, now Meta, has published its own update on how it's been responding to the board's decisions and recommendations. Meanwhile, Lawfare is also keeping track of developments on our Facebook Oversight Board blog, run by the inimitable Tia Sewell. In planning this episode, it turned out, perhaps unsurprisingly, that my co-host Evelyn Duick and I both had a lot to say on the subject. So today's show is a conversation between the two of us. We talked about what the data shows about what cases the board is taking, how the board's role seems to be evolving, and, of course, whether we're going to have to start calling this the Meta Oversight Board, thanks to Facebook's name change. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th. The Facebook Oversight Board, one year on. Quinta, get us started. Can you remind the listeners of basically where we're up to, the timeline for the Oversight Board experiment, and uh, what some key milestones have been? Yeah, so first off, I'm absolutely going to be referring to Meta as Facebook throughout this entire conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm (laughs) totally with you because, I don't know, I'm not ready to start calling the Facebook Oversight Board, which I refer to as the FOB, the mob, because then saying appealing to the mob uh, does not sound like a very good governance structure. So uh, yeah, I'm with you. Let's let's keep it as uh, Facebook and the FOB today yeah mob mob justice is what i would call it um so right so the the facebook oversight board as you've chronicled in lawfare began with a sort of amusing of mark zuckerberg and i think was announced in 2020 or so early 2020 it formally launched in september of 2020 which i don't know if you want to talk about this but there were certainly some uh, questions raised by commentators about whether or not it was wise to sort of delay the launch until most of the 2020 election campaign was already over. Yeah, I think the reasoning behind that was we don't want to throw them into the deep end when they're just getting started by having to make decisions about the 2020 election, which of course is ironic in retrospect because their first major decision was about Trump's suspension. So um, out of the frying pan into the fire on that one. Exactly. So in December 2020, the board announced the first cases that it had picked. And then, of course, the Trump decision 
division over Facebook's decision to suspend Trump permanently from its platform after he tweeted about the January 6th insurrection came out in spring of 2021, which is probably what most people think about if they think of the Facebook Oversight Board is the Trump decision. But of course, it has kept on trucking and there are a lot more things that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that for most people, including our listeners, which are probably a fairly informed audience, the Trump decision might be their only consciousness of the entire thing. And they might even be surprised to know that it has uh, continued in operation and is still deciding a fairly constant stream of decisions, actually. Like, uh, yeah, there's a, a couple of decisions every month. And we are we are tracking them all. Uh, so we, we are fair. Uh, have this amazing thing called Fob Blog. Again, we have not uh, yet <laughs> rebranded it to Mob Blog. And I, I I should say I think it's absolutely amazing. It has all of the materials and empirical analysis that you could want. And I get to say that because I can take absolutely no credit for it whatsoever. <laughs> I have no practical involvement. All credit goes to Fob Master Extraordinaire Tia Sewell, who updates it faster than you can say Fob Blog three times when new documents come out, and she does all of the uh, fancy charts and graphics. I think it's amazing how bad the website making company uh, formerly known as Facebook is at making a website to track all of the documents. So I think it's probably the best place to go to get anything that you need. Well, you, you say that only because we haven't seen what the FOB will look like in the metaverse yet. But yes, That's definitely. <laughs> FOB Island, uh, where exactly. you go check out the, the decisions from the, the FOB library. Exactly, exactly. But yes, absolutely. I will sing Tia's praises until the end of time and recommend that anybody listening to this who's interested go to the FOB blog, uh, which is if you go to the Lawfare homepage, there is a little menu bar under it and it says FOB blog and you can click and there are some really interesting tracking information, a repository of the case documents, some really cool graphics showing various pieces of information and sort of slicing and dicing the data. So definitely recommend it. And I do think that, you know, maybe this would be a good uh, opportunity to to segue into the numbers. Yeah. Okay. So enough, enough log rolling. Maybe, um, <laughs> maybe we can do some of those numbers. So why don't you tell us how many cases has the board selected so far? Right. So, so far we have uh, 24 cases that are we're counting on FOBLOG. That is a little more than the number that is tracked actually in the FOB's recent report, just because I believe their report only goes up through October 2021, and there have been a few since then. So, so 24 cases. Um, it's handed down 18 decisions, one of which was actually a mooted case. So we essentially have... 17 uh, pieces of data on on the table here. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is how you can see the board sort of feeling out its dynamic with Facebook there. So 11 of those cases, again, setting aside the mooted case, the board overturned Facebook's original decision about what to do, whether to take down or leave up a piece of content. And only six of them did it uphold Facebook's decision. And I should say that I'm counting Trump, the Trump case, as an uphold there. That's kind of squishy because what the board essentially did was say, yes, okay, it was fine that you suspended him, but we don't like how you did it. (laughs) So kind of a process objection, but I think we can still fairly call that an uphold. 
I think they would, yeah, I mean, I think they were really trying to please both sides of the equation where they could say, uh, we, we kind of like the fact that you suspended him, but we also want to ding you Facebook for some of the process so that we don't look like we're just giving you a rubber stamp. So, you know, I, I called it splitting the baby at the, at the time if they were trying to be pretty, I guess, diplomatic in the way that they, they handled that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. Like, 11 overturned decisions and only six upheld. I think keeping in mind that the board has a lot of discretion in which cases it picks. And so, you know, the the cases that it picks uh, in some sense would determine that number as well. So I think that there's some public messaging in those figures, right? Like it's not wanting to pick cases where it gets to say to Facebook, you're doing a great job. Uh, Keep it up. Keep up the good work. So yeah, no, I think that is fascinating. It's really trying to, because I think there was this perception when the experiment was first launched uh, that it could just be a rubber stamp. And so I think they're kind of chafing against that and trying to disprove that. Right. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And so one of the other really interesting things is that if you look at the cases that overturned Facebook's decision versus the cases that upheld Facebook's decision, I should also say a fair amount of the cases where the board upheld Facebook's decision are actually cases where Facebook, after the board selected the case, essentially said, oops, our bad, (laughs) and then changed its mind. So those are maybe cases that would be an overturn if Facebook itself had not said oopsie and changed what it was doing. But of the cases that are that we're counting as as overturns, I think all of them are instances in which the board said that uh, Facebook needed to put back up content that the platform had taken down. That's if you don't count Trump, obviously, which is kind of a takedown sort of um, of of the cases where the the board upheld what Facebook had done, again, setting aside Trump. So three of those, in three of those cases, the board agreed that content should be kept down. And in two of them, it agreed that it should be kept up. And I think I want to say that both of the upheld, both of the, the cases in which the board said that content should be kept up, those were cases in which Facebook reversed itself. I would want to double check that. So don't take that as gospel. But it is interesting. And it definitely fits with the sort of I don't know if adversarial is the right word, but free speech protective, maybe Mm. we can call it posture that the board is clearly taking. Yeah, it's such a, it is a super interesting dynamic because I think this was one of the concerns that people might have had when the board was first getting set up was that it was going to be really free speechy, right? Like it was, it's stacked with people who are human rights activists, journalists, um, lawyers, um, and sort of of a profile that might be predisposed to weight speech interests over, you know, maybe dignity interests or safety interests. Um, It's kind of the training that you get, I guess, as a lawyer very often or as a human rights advocate to sort of be aware of the the slippery slope, I guess, uh, that comes with restricting speech. Of course, that's not universally true. There are many lawyers that are very well aware of the the harms that speech can cause. And But I think that was in part actually the reason why the board was created. Like I think if you look at some of the documents that Noah Feldman wrote that are in some of the original reports that Facebook released on, you know, the, the, the process in setting up the board. One of the things that he is concerned with in those documents is this one-way ratchet that we're starting to see perhaps in content moderation, which is that platforms are being pressured by public pressure, by political pressure to just restrict more and more and more 
content, that there's this very much the, the public sentiment at the moment is that platforms and their lack of content moderation was harmful to society. And so they were being pressured to release more and more rules about hate speech and misinformation. And one way that legal systems have dealt with majoritarian pressure is to create something like a court body um, that is not responsive to political pressure or, you know, democratic accountability in the same way uh, and to sort of push back on that majoritarian, those majoritarian forces. And in fact, that does appear to be the way that this experiment is playing out in a sense, because as those statistics that you just cited said, that they're really pushing Facebook to leave up a lot more content, uh, which I think is super interesting. It is fascinating because that would be by far not, not, I think, what most people would consider holding Facebook to account to be right now, like what you would want of holding Facebook to account. So I should also say there's there's some even more data on this in the FOB transparency report where the board noted that in 38 cases that the board actually didn't take up, Facebook restored content that it had taken down after the case was shortlisted by <laughs> by the board. So this this dynamic where the board is kind of acting as that check and pushing Facebook to take things up, it's not just in cases where that the board actually decides it's going to take, it seems like it's altering Facebook's behavior, even when the board indicates that it is thinking about taking up those cases. So that I found super interesting. And I also think that there's some interesting stuff about the the subject areas that the board's decisions have focused on so far. And we, we might talk about that a little bit. I'm, I'm drawing here on both the transparency report and the FOBLOG data. But so most of the cases that the board has taken up so far, like 90%, are made up of cases that involve Facebook's hate speech rules, its rules about dangerous individuals and organizations, and its rules about violence and incitement. Like that, that is the vast majority yeah, that's um, <laughs> of the pie. And what's super interesting about that is that if you look at, and this is from the, the board report, if you look at the data about what kind of user appeals the board gets. Hate speech makes up about the same proportion of appeals as it does of board cases, meaning that users are appealing about cases in which this is where uh, their content was taken down. We don't yet have data about appeals for content to be put back up yet. Um, so the board is basically taking on about the same proportion of hate speech cases as it is receiving proportionately to the amount it's taking up. But the dangerous individuals and organizations makes up a way bigger proportion of cases the board takes up versus cases that users appeal. And then meanwhile, the board only took up one, I think, bullying and harassment case, but almost a full third of the appeals to restore content involve bullying and harassment. So that, I think, is super interesting. And of course, Evelyn, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's only the user appeal stream. So that obviously doesn't address the cases that Facebook itself took to the board. But it did suggest to me that you can see how the board is picking what particular issues it's really interested in addressing and maybe saying, you know, bullying and harassment is important, but not perhaps at the top of our list right now. Yeah, it's super fascinating because the, the board 
has basically infinite control over its docket. It can decide on any issue that it wants. People talk a lot about how the Supreme Court has a lot of control over its over its docket because its mandatory jurisdiction is very narrow. But I mean, the board is that on steroids, right? Like there there's are no so original many, jurisdiction here. <laughs> yeah, there's so many appeals that you can think of any content moderation issue in the world, probably, and the board could go sifting through those appeals and find one to take up. So it really could be, instead of the appeals driving the board's docket, there is in a very real sense much more like what the board wants to think about and what the board wants to write about uh, that decides which appeals it takes up, which I think is perhaps an underappreciated dynamic uh, here. So uh, it is fascinating that hate speech, dangerous individuals and organizations and violence and incitement, where it's focusing, even if that perhaps is not what users are asking it to focus on. But again, it's not that's not at all surprising, I think, if you were following sort of content moderation debates in the last uh, in the last little while, that would be, I think, where you would expect it to focus. I mean, those those three categories, hate speech, dangerous orgs, and violence and incitement, are all sort of go-to political problems, mm-hmm. right? Because correct me if I'm wrong, my impression is that the hate speech rules is so hate speech d- directed at a group of people, whereas bullying and harassment seems like, you know, harassment directed toward one person. So the board is sort of focused more on these big picture, you know, often politically involved questions. And you can really see this if if you look at the case list and maybe not so much on the questions of, you know, individuals getting harassed. Yeah. And I mean, it's amazing in some sense, again, perhaps not at all surprising, but hate speech and, you know, terrorist speech, perhaps the most controversial areas of free speech law offline and have been sort of forever. Like hate speech is perhaps the most controversial area where, you know, the United States is a famous outlier here in the First Amendment protecting hate speech, where almost every other country has laws against it. And so this is, um, it's where the speech controversies have always sat. And it maybe shouldn't be at all surprising that online is exactly the same as offline in that respect. Right. And I mean, this this also goes to the question of where the appeals came from. Uh, so the board notes that this is up through uh, June 2021. Uh, we estimate that nearly half of cases submitted, 46%, came from the US and Canada. 22% come from Europe, 16% from Latin America and the Caribbean. So the US and, and Canada um, are really overperforming <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> appeals about want people wanting to get their stuff put back up. And, and, and it's fascinating as well because it's certainly not that Facebook book would be underperforming its content moderation in those markets, right? Like one of the most shocking statistics in the Facebook papers dash files that came out was the disparity in the level of resources that Facebook devotes to uh, the US and Canada, as opposed to the rest of the world, given the number of people on Facebook in those markets compared to the rest of the world. I don't have the figures at my fingertips right now, but it was like truly shocking. It was like 80% of its funds go to those two markets, whereas 80% of the people are in in all the other markets. Right, right, exactly. And so just to, to continue rattling on the statistics, again, this is from the board, So they're estimating 8% of cases come from Asia Pacific, 4% from the Middle East and North Africa, 2% from Central and South Asia, 2% from Sub-Sahara Africa. And they do say, and this is a quote, 
We do not believe this represents the actual distribution of Facebook content issues around the globe. Mm -hmm. If anything, we have reason to believe that users in these areas of the world experience more, not fewer problems with Facebook. And I think there was a a really good line about this in the reporting around the Facebook files slash papers from, I think it was a piece in The Atlantic that basically said users engaging in the United States with Facebook's English language platform are getting the best product that is out there, which I think really helps frame it. And you see that in actually in the Facebook report that we're, or excuse me, meta that we're also (laughs) going to discuss where I can't quite find the, the specific functionality that they're talking about, but it relates to a board recommendation of essentially being clearer about when Facebook is you know, taking your content down, why it's doing that, what rules you violated, and so forth. And it says, we're beginning to roll this out in English. Yeah. And that, I think, really jumped out at me as I was, you know, I had been primed by this data from the Facebook Oversight Board and from the Facebook files. They're rolling it out in English. How long is it going to take until everybody else gets it? Not clear. Yeah, well, let's jump to one of the most shocking recommendations that the board had to make in its first bunch of decisions over the first year of its life, which is around the community standards and what languages they're available in. Like, this is not even just notifications to users about why their content has been taken down. This is, like, what the rules are um, when you are on the platform and what languages users could read those in. Um, This was one that just like totally blew my mind. So maybe you want to tell us what did the board say about what languages uh, the, the community standards should be available in? Right. So there is information about this in the meta report in response to the board recommendation. And this, I mean, this just absolutely blew me away. I'm going to quote again. So they say, we are translating our community standards and community guidelines into Punjabi, Urdu, Marathi, Telugu, Tamil, Gujarati, and other Indic languages. We have completed translation into Urdu and expect a complete translation into Punjabi by the end of the year, with additional Indic languages coming in the first part of 2022. I just want to say Punjabi is the ninth most spoken language in the world. Urdu is the 11th most spoken language in the world. This is hundreds of millions of people. And it's also, by the way, a area of the world where there has been increased reporting about serious problems in terms of the Indian government pressuring platforms to take things down, about increasing political violence. So reading that, I mean, absolutely blew my mind that they still do not have just as you say, the community standards, like the rules of the road, like the driving directions, you know, do you stop on red? is not available if your primary language is Punjabi. That is unbelievable. It's completely ridiculous. And the board in making this recommendation in the case, you know, made some sort of slightly snide remark that was something like, we are aware of how many resources Facebook (laughs) has. You really think you could get your game together and translate this into Punjabi. And it's, it's a, I don't really know how to think about this, right? Because on the one hand, it seems like a good use case for the board, right? Like the board has picked up this issue. Facebook doesn't have its community standards in Punjabi. It makes this recommendation and it's, you know, 
it's a very specific recommendation. It gives Facebook a very specific action item and then Facebook goes and does it. Although I have no idea why it's taking it so long to translate its community standards into Punjabi. But anyway, let's just put that aside for a second. On the other hand, I mean, why the hell do we need an oversight board for this? Like right. it should, like maybe it's a good use case for the oversight board only because Facebook is so incredibly recalcitrant and it's like a toddler that needs a parent to say like, <laughs> just, you know, put your pants on Facebook. Like how does it not have uh, this very basic sort of requirement of notice to users about what they can and can't do on the platform? So, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's great that we had the board to point this out. On the other hand, why the hell did we need the board to point this out? I do think there's an interesting dynamic between Facebook slash Meta, the board, and the press that you can kind of see in these reports, mostly through the discussion of the cross-check system, which we can discuss, where Facebook is sort of on its back foot a little bit. And it's responding, as you say, to the board, um, which is kind of coming in in this this kind of, you know, parenting, maybe inspector general type role. But the board is also responding to the press. And that leads, I think, to some pretty interesting things where, you know, the there's a lot of skepticism about the board as kind of a paper tiger and that, you know, it wasn't really going to be able to perform the kind of ombudsman function that was needed to hold Facebook accountable. But you can see, like, you know, they're they're taking judicial notice, so to speak, about information that's provided in the press and using that in terms of how they engage with Facebook and what kind of issues they want to press Facebook on. And I found that really, really interesting, honestly, in part because Facebook has been so intensely aggressive in criticizing the press, that the way that the oversight board kind of picks up these critical stories about Facebook and runs with them is interesting to see. Yeah, maybe we should jump to talking about the cross-check system, actually, because I think that's a really good example um, to play out these dynamics. Because in some sense, it is a good example of how the board is a paper tiger, right? So this originally came up in the Trump decision. The cross-check system at a high level is basically a system that Facebook has to give priority and extra review and extra escalation to very high profile or important users whose content will get a lot of attention. And so Trump is one of those, was one of those users uh, whose content would be subject to the cross-check system. And so in the Trump decision, the board had asked Facebook questions about its cross-check system. And Facebook had given these answers. And one of the answers that it gave was that it only applied to a very small amount of decisions. And then, I mean, we can talk a bit more about this, but in the Facebook files reporting, it came out that actually, no, it was a very large amount of decisions. And so it's a good example of how, in a sense, the board is just at the mercy of what information Facebook wants to give it. You know, that it has no coercive power. It can't verify any of the facts. You know, Facebook isn't on oath uh, and has no obligation to tell it the truth, except for the fact that, you know, it had a bit of egg on its face when this reporting came out that it had lied to the board. But on the other hand, when the reporting came out that it had lied to the board, it did look extra bad and it did look like it was undermining its own experiment. And now it's given the board this leverage to follow up on the cross-check system. And now Facebook has asked the board for a policy advisory opinion on what it should do about the cross-check system in the future. So again, mixed feelings about this dynamic. Right. That's that's absolutely right. And I mean, the board is clearly pretty pissed off. So they, they released a public statement after this report came out in the Wall Street Journal in September, 
about how widely crosscheck was used, essentially saying, we're very mad and this is going to, you know, really affect our relationship with Facebook if we don't get the answers that we want. On one hand, yes, as you say, essentially issuing a statement saying, we're mad and we want more information. Maybe not the most threatening thing in the world. On the other hand, yes, I do I do think that it changed the public conversation to have the story not just be Facebook has this system that it published one blog post on in like what, like 2010 or something. And it turns out it's they've been using it more widely and in a bad way, right? So, you know, part of what the board was mad about is that the the journal reporting essentially said that crosscheck was used so widely that it essentially just gave some people a free pass. And being able to frame that report as Facebook is using this crosscheck system much more than they acknowledged in that blog post, and they substantially misled the board about it, is a much more damning story. And I and I do think that mattered to to some extent. I mean, I guess it will it will depend on, you know, what kind of information the board produces in its advisory opinion around crosscheck and and whether Facebook implements any of those recommendations. I'll also say that one of the things that I found really interesting about this this fight over whether or not crosscheck is used on a small number of accounts, it is actually a really good example of just how big Facebook is. Because I think what the, it seems like from from the meta report and from the Facebook oversight board meta, oh God, um, report, <laughs> that part of what happened is that yes, it is used, crosscheck is used on a small proportion of accounts, but there are billions of people on Facebook. So a small proportion of a billion people is still like, a lot of people, maybe a bunch of people who the board would like to hear about. And so I I found that interesting just as an example of how the sheer scale of Facebook can kind of distort our perceptions of what big or small means. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, there's a there is the distinct possibility that Facebook was answering the board's questions. And from its perspective, this really was a small number of decisions that were in the cross-check system. It wasn't intending to, you know, mislead the board. It just sort of wasn't really thinking about it. And it was a good faith answer that then looked very bad once you put it in context. The problem is there's no trust of Facebook that that's the case. I mean, uh, there's plenty of reasons to believe that Facebook does mislead uh, the public and potentially the board when it makes statements. So we don't know which of those two worlds we're living in. I'd just say one other thing about this. It is, you know, this is actually a very hard issue. And I'm glad that Facebook has referred the question to the board because I think there are legitimate trade-offs here, right? Like on the one hand, it obviously looks extremely bad to have a small subset of users, high profile, powerful people that are subject to a special system that gives them priority. And in fact, the way that it played out in practice was because the system was completely overwhelmed. It basically amounted to a whitelist where these people could basically post whatever they wanted. Like that looks terrible. On the other hand, maybe we would want these platforms to have a special system for extremely high profile accounts whose posts are going to get a lot more traction and visibility to prioritize review of those accounts um, so that they, you know, get actioned faster one way or the other. Of course, that's not how it played out in practice, uh, but you can see how there is a tension there and and a trade-off. And it seems like perhaps exactly the kind of issue that the board might have been set up 
originally to deal with. Like, here's this difficult trade-off that is, in some sense, a values question, what should we do about it, and sort of throwing the hot potato to the board in thinking about that. I will say something that I found interesting about this was the performativity of it all. So like you said, the Wall Street Journal had this report about the cross-check system and the board came out with this public statement that it was very, very angry. And then it came out with another statement um, that it was meeting with the whistleblower, Francis Haugen, about the cross-check system. And it was sort of like there's been no further follow-up about that, but there's sort of this Yeah, public relations exercise and campaign by the board to say, we are taking this very seriously and we will hold Facebook to account and we demand more transparency and better answers, which is very much not court-like in this in a sense. It is very much its own public relations campaign. And I uh, to be honest, it, it rubs me the wrong way. That is not how I think that the board should be acting. I would prefer to see it sort of sitting in a more neutral posture and not actively trying to curry public favor. Uh, I just don't feel like that in the long term is a good way to build up trust. Um, but I, I'm curious what you think about that. So you say you're you're not comfortable with it because it's it's insufficiently court-like? I'm not comfortable with the board trying to run its own kind of advertising or public relations campaign and uh, trying to sort of construct an image of it holding Facebook to account. I think if it's holding Facebook to account, that should be apparent in the work that it does and the decisions that it issues, um, rather than these statements that say, we are very angry about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say this kind of goes to the question of to what extent the public has any understanding or knowledge of of the board which i know is something that that you've been interested in and one thing that jumped out at me in the board's transparency report is this super interesting graph about the estimated number of cases submitted by users to the board by week and what it essentially shows is the number starts ticking up after the board opens for business um, in September, October 2020. It's sort of, you know, a healthy a healthy upward line. And then there's this huge spike in submitted cases around December 2020. What happened in, the, in December 2020? As the board notes, that's the week that the Oversight Board announced its initial rounds of cases. Um, and they note, it is also the week that the board, quote, received significant media coverage. So <laughs> it's it's certainly true that the board, as you say, is just receiving a flood of submissions and taking a tiny, tiny amount of them. But I did kind of look at that and think, perhaps from a sort of an institutional perspective from the board, there is a benefit in making news, being in the headlines, so that users are aware of it as an institution, have a conception that, you know, if my post is taken down and I exhaust my appeals within Facebook or Instagram, I have access to this sort of quasi- judicial body. And because all of the details that we're talking about now are pretty nerdy and not on the radar of the majority of people, that making headlines like Facebook Oversight Board meets with Facebook Whistleblower is actually a a good way to do that. But I don't know. Do you think I'm I'm off base there? 
No, I think that's a good point. I remember that week well, and I've, as someone that writes and talks about the oversight board, I've never been as popular as I was uh, <laughs> in that week, and I probably never will ever again. Um, it was it was very nice to know that people knew I existed and were reading my work for about five days. So, I mean, I think that's that's fair. It, you know, telling people that it exists is a good thing. I think what I'm reacting against is the sense that it's not doing it in a in a more neutral dignified maybe dignified is the word I'm looking for <laughs> manner like it, it's Twitter account retweets a bunch of things um, you know sort of going one way or the other and I'm not sure that long term that's the best way to sort of shore up the legitimacy of the institution as opposed to certain members of the institution or certain views of the institution like you know if this works it's going to be around for a while and it should you know maybe outlast any particular individual point of view um and and so I, I think that's what I'm but maybe you're right that maybe I'm just you know a lawyer with my very conservative formalistic views of how institutions should behave and I need to get with the times and, you know <laughs> institutions tweet on Twitter now like get with it Evelyn um everyone has a Twitter presence like if uh, uh if meat brands and steakums have you know Twitter accounts that, that tweet out substantive stuff why shouldn't the um why shouldn't the oversight board I I will say that it reminds me of the the one week a year after the end of the Supreme Court term where the uh, at SCOTUS blog Twitter handle, which is not the Supreme Court, t- retweets all the tweets from people who think that they are the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> um, I honestly, in, so in seriousness, I think you have a point. I will say reading this transparency document and reading some of the decisions, you know, with my kind of legal journalist hat on, I will say something I really appreciate these things are easy to read. Like they're, mm-hmm. they are clearly written with, with a public audience in mind and not just the, you know, lawyers and people who are paying really close attention to Facebook. And I do think that that is worth flagging as something that is good and something that I appreciate. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll put the, the holding up front. They're very clear about why they did what they did. The language is not sort of tangled and thorny. And part of that, of course, is that, you know, they're they're making their own case law from scratch. They don't have to worry about citing all kinds of, you know, arcane jurisprudence. But I do think, you know, insofar as they're trying to have a public presence, that's that's a good development, I would say. Yeah, I think that that is also fair. I guess the only like last point that I'd maybe make um, to try and defend this point of view that I have apparently struck out very strongly uh, with um, is to say that I do think it actually has substantive effects. So we were talking before about the makeup of the docket and how you know most of the decisions were overturning Facebook. And then I think that this really, really came through in the Trump decision, where the decision to me read very much like it was sort of written backwards, right? Like it had, a, a, it wanted to come out with this like split the baby, try and please all sides kind of decision of, you know, we agree with the suspension, but we don't agree with how Facebook did it. And Facebook needs to throw the issue back to Facebook uh, in the sense that it's very concerned with the public image, perhaps, and, and perhaps that has substantive impacts on how it thinks about what decisions to take and how to make those decisions, which is why I find the overt concern of how the public will perceive it slightly disconcerting and an indication of uh, how it thinks about its role that is not how I would like it to think about its role. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. That's interesting. 
you were just mentioning the spike in user appeals. And one of the other really interesting statistics I thought from the Oversight Board's transparency report about the number of user appeals that it gets is the kinds of appeals. So when the board was first launched, it could only hear appeals from people who had had their content taken down, who wanted it restored. I know someone who wrote about why that would not be a good (laughs) idea. (laughs) Endlessly, monotonously, I whinged about it for like the first 18 months of the oversight board experiment. I apologize for boring you with that. I'm very pleased to say that at some point, Facebook did give the board the power to hear appeals from people who uh, had flagged someone else's content to be taken down and Facebook had left it up. And one of the amazing statistics from the Oversight Board's report is just how many more people appealed decisions where their content was taken down as opposed to where someone else's content had been left up and they wanted it taken down. To give you an example, in June 2021, there was one point where nearly 19,000 people had appealed to have their content restored, whereas only 1.5 thousand people had appealed to have someone else's content taken down. And in a sense, that's not at all surprising, right? Like people would be much more invested in their own content rather than someone else's. And you have to go through a number of appeals and write a statement and blah, blah, blah to get to the board and have your decision reviewed. But on the other hand, if you think about it systemically, it means that the board is being asked to address a very specific kind of claim much more often than another kind of claim. And it, I think, shows the weakness of relying on individuals to raise systemic issues, right? Like we are relying on individual people who are sufficiently invested in a a single decision that Facebook made to hold Facebook as a whole to account. And that's not necessarily, I think, the way that you achieve systemic change more broadly. I found that super interesting. And I mean, it It really is. There are some graphs in the in the board report and they're just incredibly striking how there's sort of, you know, a, a big jagged line that goes up and down with cases that are submitted to the board. And then this teeny tiny little line that just kind of creeps above, above the, the X axis with people who want content removed. And yeah, I did wonder whether to some extent that was... Because of the sort of the expressive nature, not only of, you know, posting something on Facebook, but of of pursuing it all the way to the top. I guess my question to you is, what would you want to see? Like, do you think that the board should be investigating this more? Do you think that Facebook should be referring more removal or potential removal cases to the board? Like, how do you get around that problem? Yeah, and in a sense, it might not be an issue because of what we were saying before about the board's complete control over its docket. So yes, it gets you know 20,000 appeals one way and 1,000 appeals the other way, but it could still pick 100 cases that were from people trying to flag other people's content. So it, you know the board could control the way that it thinks about that. But again, is that how we want it to work? You know, Should we want it to completely disregard how users are trying to use it as an institution and just do what it wants on a frolic of its own. I think it goes to a broader issue that I think we're seeing with the evolution of the board, which is that it's actually looking less and less court-like every day as an institution. I think it was set up, I mean, 
Mark Zuckerberg, when he first referred to it the first time as the Supreme Court of Facebook, it was really sort of set up as this quasi-judicial body that would hear individual cases and announce, you know, uh, lofty principles that Facebook should adopt in its standards. And that is not how it's playing out in practice. It is the the individual decisions about pieces of content, unsurprisingly, are turning out to be completely sort of irrelevant. And it's not so much focusing on like lofty principles of telling Facebook, like, this is what your hate speech standard should look like, or, you know, this is how you should think about nudity and breast cancer. It's much more trying to probe these systemic problems, right? Like it's trying to say, this is the kind of notice that you need to give users or tell us about your error rates across different kinds of languages. And and these kinds of questions and uh, recommendations that are focused at the underlying systems of Facebook's content moderation as opposed to the substantive norms, which raises a whole bunch of issues around, well, okay, is a court-like body the best way to deal with these like dynamic systems that are constantly changing and incredibly complex and raise all of these trade-offs? And you see this uh, being raised by Facebook as well in its transparency report, uh, where it says, while we have made important changes as a result of the board's recommendations. We believe that the current design of the recommendation process may not be the best way to bring about the long-term structural changes the board is pushing us to undertake. And they say this is for two reasons. The first is that the pace and volume of the recommendations don't allow it adequate time to assess and implement the recommendations. And the second is that the written back and forth between the board that, you know, roughly resembles like written submissions to a court isn't a helpful way of actually informing the board because these are really nuanced issues and they aren't conducive to being sort of boiled down to simple statements. And so they've started holding question and answer sessions with the board to discuss policies. And again, that's starting to look very uncourt-like. Like if a judge went and found one of the parties to a case and just sort of sat down with them and had a chat um, about what they had been doing, that would probably raise a few red flags. Um, but that is perhaps a better way of, of Facebook and the board relating. I don't know. I have I have a lot of thoughts about this, Quinta, but I'm interested in yours. There is an aspect of that portion of the meta report that is just kind of funny. Um, there is a great headline from Protocol that said, Facebook says it can't keep pace with its own oversight board. And there's, there's an element of that that's inherently amusing. But again, just I think points to the, you know, the problem of scale in this whole thing, which is, of course, part of why the oversight board exists at all, that there's just so much stuff to look at and to do that even responding to Facebook's own ombudsman becomes this kind of almost insurmountable task. So I found I found that fascinating. I mean I'm I'm curious what you think of the the sort of question and answer option. That that seemed like a potentially reasonable way of getting around this this problem. Yeah, I mean I do think that this process needs a rethink, right? Like I I thought the protocol headline was very funny, but I also think that Facebook has a fair point when you're looking at the way that this process is playing out, right? Like if the board is issuing a couple of decisions a month and it, you know, can include in each of those decisions, sometimes, you know, over 10 recommendations, it creates, you know, a bit of a problem for Facebook in 
how to keep up with that. Like, I mean, Crimea River, Facebook uh, has. Right. I mean, welcome uh, to the party. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But some of them too, like, so I think that there is a sense in which Meta and the Oversight Board need to have a better conversation, right? Like some of the board's recommendations, I can imagine, you know, falling down on someone's desk at, at, at Facebook and them looking at it and going, I just don't know what to do with them. Some of them amount to really like, just do better Facebook. And I don't know how Facebook responds to that in a tangible way. Like, okay, we will do better. And so I do think that there is, you know, we're going to need some experimentation on how these conversations occur. I'm a little bit uneasy about the board and Facebook having off the record behind the scenes, just chats. Um, I'm not sure that that is in keeping with the whole idea that this experiment was intended to create much more transparency into Facebook's operations. But at the same time, I have some sympathy with the idea that maybe this isn't what we currently have is not the best possible process and it might need some work. Right. It's just, just think of it as, you know, an ex parte and camera conversation. Okay. So we've been talking about this in fairly broad brush terms and that's interesting. That's kind of where I live. Um, but I also think it's worth maybe talking a little bit more specifically about some decisions uh, to give listeners a bit of a flavor of the day-to-day work of the board, like not the structural setup, but some of the things that it's doing in practice beyond telling Facebook to translate its community standards into Punjabi. Um, some of the, like, I actually think possibly tangible real impacts that the board can have. And one I think here that was reasonably exciting was a decision by the board uh, concerning an Al Jazeera post from the um, accredited media organization that had been taken down during the conflict in the Gaza Strip between Israel and Palestine earlier this year. And it was one of those ones where Facebook admitted it had made a mistake in taking down the post as soon as the board picked up the case, but the board proceeded with the decision anyway uh, as a vehicle for making some broader recommendations. And one of the recommendations that it made concerned some of the reporting that happened around the time about Facebook's disparate impacts in how it was moderating Palestinian content versus Israeli content, right? So it seemed to be that, uh, and, and many human rights organizations were raising this issue with Facebook and with the media at the time, that Facebook was taking down a lot more posts from Palestinians raising their human rights concerns than it was from the Israeli side of the conflict. And, you know, this comes against the background of, we did a podcast episode about this, which was, you know, one of our, one of our better ones, I think, about how the Israeli government has this special cyber reporting unit for flagging posts with Facebook directly. So that has this unusually close relationship with Facebook. And obviously that raises a whole bunch of red flags, right? About how Facebook is moderating content in the region and the disparate impacts of that and what effects it's having on human rights and of specific marginalized populations getting their message out. Um, And I think really speaks to the ways in which Facebook can be really important as a venue for free speech and the public sphere. And so the board in its recommendation said to Facebook, you need to commission an independent report into this situation to basically check your systems and do an investigation into whether you are having a disparate impact on one side of the line versus the other. And Facebook said, yes, Facebook has commissioned an independent entity to do a report into the region. And, you know, I think, and that, and that's something that a lot of human rights advocates have come out uh, really in support of. And 
I would say is almost certainly something that Facebook would not have done if it weren't for the board recommendations. Like some of the recommendations that Facebook says it's implementing, it's hard to tell how much of that really comes from the board, right? Like ultimately Facebook was going to translate its community standard into Punjabi, you would hope. I mean, I certainly hope so. (laughs) Yeah, but it doesn't actually seem to be happening that much faster. So the impact of the board there is, you know, potentially questionable but I think this is an instance where it's something really good this independent investigation and I think it's pretty safe to say it would not have happened but for the board and now of course we need to wait and see what the substance of the report is whether it actually has any material impact but I do think that that's a a good example of a place where the board does have some value. This this case is just a really fascinating case study for all of the reasons that you suggested. I mean, there, there's just, there's so much going on that we're, we're not going to be able to have time to get to. But I mean, the aspect where Facebook removed incorrectly content that was essentially a, a post-quoting information from a cross-checked organization that had been cleared as a news organization, that's a sort of an interesting aspect in terms of how Facebook implements its cross-check guidelines. There's this weird little detour where the oversight board is describing how the post was removed, where it's sort of, you get this sense of how the system works, where the post is flagged. So it's put up by a user in Egypt. It's uh, reported as terrorism by another user in Egypt. It goes through a moderator in North Africa who did speak Arabic. Then it gets kicked to Southeast Asia for some reason <laughs> from a yeah. moderator who, who doesn't speak Arabic. And the board kind of says, yeah, we don't, we don't know why that happened. <laughs> um, which I, I found interesting only insofar as you know, we're kind of getting a peek into how a just truly enormous machine works on a really granular level. And you get a window into the weird things that sometimes happen. But yeah, I mean, I I do think you're right that having an organization that is pushing Facebook and that is in a position to push Facebook to release more information strikes me as, in general, a good thing. And kind of warms my heart as somebody who writes about this and, you know, would like to see more transparency just in terms of, you know, piercing the black box a little bit. So that I think is is positive, as you say, right? I mean, it's it's kind of hard for me to to see the downside here. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree. Like, I have learned things from the oversight board process, from the oversight board's decisions, Facebook's answers. Is it, you know, going to fix all of our problems with Facebook? I say this every time we talk about it. No, I do not think this is the hero we deserve. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it is it is in some sense very toothless. It, you know, it is reduced to releasing statements saying it's very angry. You know, we're going to need a whole bunch of structural reform. We're going to need legislation and regulation. But to the extent that it can serve some purpose, I'm learning things. I think it is serving that purpose. And I can't see the downsides. And I maybe we can close with that about, you know, the the concerns that people raised about the potential downsides and whether those have come to fruition. Right. So the big concern that was often raised was that, you know, the oversight board was a paper tiger and it was essentially a way for Facebook to defuse efforts at regulation from from Congress, from from policymakers. At the time, you know, I was sort of kind of felt like we're just going to have to wait and see 
now that we have waited and seen, it definitely does not seem to me like it's taken the wind out of regulator sales. I mean, I don't know if I would say the opposite because I don't know how much the board is a, a factor that is altering the calculus here, but everybody still seems pretty mad at Facebook. <laughs> um, and there are, if anything, it seems like we're moving even more quickly toward some kind of policy change, although I have no idea what that will look like, or even if it will be a good idea. And part of what I was trying to get at in describing the sort of dynamic between the board and the press in the way that those two entities play off one another you could look at that and say the board is actually helping fuel bad news cycles for Facebook by saying, you know, it turns out that we didn't know a lot about crosscheck and Facebook did, the board thinks, mislead us. And so in that sense, it doesn't seem to me like it's a distraction. I mean, never say never. I don't know what I don't know. But it doesn't look to me like that's been the case. Yeah, I think a year into this oversight board experiment, it's safe to say that regulators around the world did not go, oh, okay, then uh, we're good. Uh, we can stop investigating Facebook now and writing legislation. Uh, they did this oversight board thing, problem solved. Exactly as you say, 100% the opposite. I can't keep up with all the regulation being written that is targeted at Facebook almost entirely around the world right now. I think that pretty much whenever the board does get written up in the press, which is not that often, they are negative headlines for Facebook, you know, right? the board says we need more transparency or Facebook lied to the board or, you know, Facebook can't keep up with its own board. Like it is never the board looks captured and has just rubber stamped another Facebook opinion. And so I think that it is fueling that cycle. It is giving more ammo to the conversation to the extent that it matters at all. Um, I will say there's, there is an interesting dynamic where regulators sometimes seem interested in this kind of third-party independent arbitral model. And we see it popping up you know, in a decision of the Israeli Supreme Court that we've talked about on this podcast before, where the Supreme Court took, took notice of the fact that the oversight board existed as an example of Facebook providing due process to its users, which is uh, kind of hilarious for all of the reasons that we've talked about, about the tiny fraction of cases that the oversight board hears. And we also see the model in the major piece of European legislation, the Digital Services Act, where they talk about platforms having a third-party independent appeals body that users can appeal to. So I don't think regulators are being, you know, sort of had their minds set at ease by the fact that the oversight board exists, but I would say they are oversight board curious in a sense. All right. Well, I, th I think we've covered it. I don't think there's anything left to discuss. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully our listeners are also oversight board curious, otherwise this has been <laughs> a very boring hour for them. <laughs> You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed. One programming note, you won't hear us next Thursday because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but we'll be back the week after that. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening.